Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over for us this week to Spartan Grown. Cheers, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Um, and if you don't do the social media, you can shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with all your gardening questions. If you have lighting LED questions, um, you can shoot me an email over at uh, Grandmaster Love, or at, it's at Ross at gmlarmy.com. That's hard for me to remember for some reason. <laughs> All right. You got a lot of different contacts, points of context there, but uh, you got through them. And uh, I will say, I don't know if you said you adjusted the audio on your mic or something. I think you said there was like an auto adjust or it went to the bottom. I think you might be on auto adjust or something because it sounds to me on... like it was like full volume and then it would go like low and then up and then low and then up. All right. So I'll turn the could... auto off. I think that might be the best way to go and just let it rip as high as possible because uh, I think the only complaints we've ever had is Spartan's not loud enough. So never complaining that you're uh, too quiet there. But at the <laughs> other token we've got to uh, introduce Matthew Gates. Yeah, everyone, it's Matthew Gates, IPM specialist. And actually today I'll be talking about, um, about pests from a survey that recently came out about 2023 and, and before uh, pests and cannabis in the United States. And I'm excited to talk about what that might mean for the 2024 year and, and going further than that. So there's a few species that you might not expect, but many that you'll probably recognize. Very good stuff. I've been following your post and uh, saw a little bit of the teasers there. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also very much looking forward to having Aaron the Grower back with us this week as well. What's going on, guys? I'm happy to be back. Return from the grave. Uh, I'm Aaron the Grower, ATG Acres on Instagram. Man, it feels good to do this again. ATGacres.com. We always kept you in the uh, links in the description below the YouTube video or Spotify. So even when you're not here, people can uh, make sure they know where to find you and all the crew. Uh, that goes for everybody else's contact information as well, who's here and the individuals who aren't quite with us yet. But that being said, we've got another one joining us in the next minute or so. The American one will be joining us. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to this evening. I think Matthew has a little bit of research and uh, a survey, like he said, that he's going to go over that is specific to cannabis and the pests within it. But while uh, <laughs> before we get into that, I want to give a moment. You might have just heard him in the background if you have a keen ear uh, to welcome the American one. Hello, Jack panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Keens over at the IG. Most of you know me and uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Sorry I'm late. I did some update and I had to like sign in again and do a whole bunch of stuff, but it's great to be here. They're always uh, messing with us with the Zoom or some of the technology. Uh, you know, we try to stay up to date, but each week, you know, it'll, it'll be the last second right before we jump on. So uh, I'm glad that you were able to make it. And I think that we may have Noah the Groa come in a little bit later as well. But uh, Matthew, I believe, did say that he wanted to go ahead and start it off with sharing some of that pest information that I think is very pertinent for people all across. I believe it was a U.S. survey. But Matthew, could you tell us a little bit more about what we're going to get into tonight? Yeah. And, and while I'm doing that, make it uh, available to share. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, so this survey came out late 2023 from the University of Kentucky. It's really interesting. I made a, a post about it on Instagram and it got a lot of attention. And so, you know, and I also really liked how it was composed too. They basically went through, they 
chopped up the U.S. into different regions, and then they looked at, they had people send in, or specialists who, who know how to like taxonomically rank, at least to a certain degree, um, various pests in cannabis. And so they, they had a survey, and they had people respond to that survey, and this is basically the information of what the various pests were that they found um, in these different regions, essentially. And yeah, let's share it here. Here we go. So this is this is my uh, Adobe PDF. I got a bunch of other cool research that I'm always looking at. But uh, today we're going to be talking about this. Uh, so it's called a current and distribution of common diseases and pests of U.S. cannabis a survey. And yeah, so at the very beginning onset, any questions or commentary before we get into it? From my layman's understanding of just what we've gone through so far is this is really just a detail of self-reported people saying they've seen this in their area or is there a more stringent thing like actual they're actually going out into the into areas and trying to document this or is it just i've seen this in my car it's just a survey yes exactly exactly in fact i even took a look at the supplementary material and i and they showed how the survey was constructed so if anyone's interested in that they can definitely look at that themselves but you have an example of some of the various people who were associated including Paul Gauthier the last author and uh even Oregon CBD we had they were they were part of this too so yeah and yeah I, I like it because they have a lot of nice graphs graphs are fun data is beautiful right so here are the various regions I actually forget what they're called off the top of my head they probably have it here uh, somewhere. <laughs> um, I can get to the, uh, abstract though. I could, I could talk about that. So here we have, okay. So the survey of diagnostician, diagnosticians, researchers, and industry leaders conducted from 2021 to 2022 sought to determine the distribution and occurrence of 76 common diseases and pests in cannabis sativa across the United States. A total of 148 responses were collected and grouped by U.S. region, which are Western, Great Plains, North Central, Northeastern, and Southern. Survey results suggest that whereas some pathogens and pests are widely distributed across the United States, others occur more frequently in, sp in specific regions. This finding may indicate variations in economic importance by region. Results from this survey provide a foundation for regional and national prioritization of research and regulatory activities. This is the kind of information I've been kind of hoping to get, actually, uh, you know, just in the sense of agriculture research. So I'm kind of, I'm very happy that this is being talked about. So, so that's, that's the abstract. Interesting. That's interesting how they're trying to connect whether the per, per, whether there it's a perceived issue or not. Basically, if, if the regulatory bodies are are really focusing on it or not, and if that has any effects, I love to see stuff like that. Like if a regulatory body, for example, was trying to allot money to help control the whatever pest spotted lanternfly, um, it'd be interesting to see if in those jurisdictions or those areas, if the spotted lanternfly was less pervasive in reports like this. I totally agree with that, actually. And I, I think I, I completely agree because so much money is tied up for, at least in the U.S., 
and other parts other countries have this too right where you got a big pest you know it's going to cost your two billion a dollar industry one billion dollars then it makes sense to spend you know at least close to that much to not have that be a problem right so and a lot of pests in cannabis are and have been pests in other crops for a very long time so we already have some information about them which is useful so then we can just mate that to the more cannabis oriented information, but this survey is a great step in that. So for example, here, this diagram we have, um, I believe, yes, this is, so A is major pathogen and B is major arthropod. Arthropod would be like insects, mites, um, and that kind of a thing, armored body organisms, right? So the first one is basically pathogens, which they also include nematodes here, but nematodes are animals. So, I mean, <laughs> but they're a pathogen because they generate, they have effects on plants that are very similar to like other disease causing organisms. That's why they're often grouped together. Taxonomy is funny. Um, so you can see here that in the Western region, uh, which I guess they include Hawaii and Alaska here, a big range of pathogens are, are fungal. In fact, all of these, fun fungal is the most prevalently reported. And in B for arthropods, we get kind of a spread, but you'll know one thing that came out to me about this is that all of these regions other, I mean, because there's a lot of things can be other, right? So that's probably just an artifact of how that works. But it was interesting to see that so many things were not like aphids, beetles, bugs. They put boars, which could which are caterpillars themselves usually, but they could be other kinds of insects. I don't know if I agree with this taxonomic the use of this uh, term here, but I guess they mean like functionally these things bore into your plants. A lot of times those are like caterpillars, which here 15% for the, uh, uh, this is the Great Plains region. So for those who are watching, uh, the blue is the Western, the red is the Great Plain region, uh, the green is the Southern region, North Central is here where Spartan is, and then we have here, which is the northeastern region. So if people are not familiar with the U.S., yes, we do often call this section the south, even though many of these states are like the east, um, so to speak. So but I don't want to get into any fights about that. <laughs> That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, we always talk about the northeast, but there's never just east. Why isn't it? Why right. What is? Yeah, yeah, we have west coast. Why don't we just talk east coast all in one? It's the South, yeah. It must be a population <laughs> thing. There's a lot of population. They want to split it in half. Well, yeah, the Northeast is often referred to as the Northeast. But the Southeast, Indeed. I don't hear that much. I don't really hear Southeast that much either, right? Yeah, I mean, or just South, East, right? Like, technically, <laughs> yeah. all of yeah. this is East, really. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. East of what, I suppose? Um, but yeah, so just just like just as a as a point, um, if we go through these, like in the in the western region, other is pretty big, but you know, a big one are these bugs. So when they say bugs here, they mean like the ones that have like a sucking mouth part, so like aphids or white fly or scale insects or things like this. So not like chewing mouth part insects like caterpillars or beetles or things like that, which you can see articulated. Here. In all of these, though, uh, lepid, lepid, Lepidotera, moths and butterflies, is a huge, huge amount, right? So here, 23% in the north central region, 18% here, uh, also in the, um, in the northeastern region, 
23% the southern region, like the Corn Belt, you know, like we're going to get corn earworm in the Corn Belt, right? That that makes sense. That tracks. So, yeah. Any Absolutely. impressions? Uh, I, I'd like to know what's like truly what's part of the others because it's such a significant part of the graph. But other than that, I, I was pretty straightforward. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there, too. I did look into it, but I'm having trouble remind, reminding myself about um, how that was articulated. It is somewhere in the in the uh, document. So maybe if we're in a big conversation, I'll take the time to search that down. Here, I mean, speaking of Oklahoma, though, like with Aaron, right? Like this is like, you know, it's, uh, I don't know how many people would agree with Oklahoma not being part of the south area, but I guess here they're calling it. You're going to make Plains. a lot of. Oklahoma's mad with not including us in the South. Yeah, anyway. right. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you know, yeah. Um, my father's state, Kentucky, is definitely in the South, I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but the, definitely it's the Great Plains, right? Certainly flat. You know, then maybe that was the logic. And I or is this on geographical the, uh... region or is this based on the similar pest like is Oklahoma they, just more like the northern pests than it is? They like use the term geographic Texas region here. Ones. Yeah, but um, yeah, so not like cultural. I honestly think it's weird to include Alaska in the West Coast. I understand geographically it's there. But Agreed. It's so far north, you'd think that its pest <laughs> well, numbers are going to be way different than, say, California. Tactfully, they put they just said west. They were just like the west. Yeah. But you're right. It's very different than California, Oregon, Washington, Arizona, Nevada. I mean, part of these, I mean, Nevada, California, Arizona, these are all they would be the most diverse dry the west because you got Hawaii. Versus Alaska. like Washington, Oregon. Yeah. That's okay. That's yeah, weird so these are these two. Down. Also, uh, you know, creeping up in here close to like 20% here. So that would be one of five is like viruses here. If we go to the pathogen section here, we had less reported in the north central region, uh, only about 2% here in the northeastern region, a very small 3% in the southern region. But in the west, we got five or sorry, we got 17%. And in the Great Plains region, we have a whopping 15%. And if I remember correctly, a lot of those were... Um, the curly top virus and things like that, which we can see here. So this is a diagram of um, the occurrence of in here, A, fungal and B, oomycete, bacterial, nematode and viral diseases across the surveys. They were represented as percentage of respondents who confirmed causal pathogens. So, and the color coordination here is that if it's red, there's an instance in all five regions, yellow, only four, blue is three, and green is two. And so we can see the big ones um, are represented here at the top for all these, for these two different kinds of uh, groups. Botrytis, so, powdery mildew, leaf spot. Oh, no, you go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to ask you, Matthew. Um, so it doesn't matter if the West, say, tests more of their plants and more get tested than other parts of the country because it's just what's reported so if it's reported it's tested so it's a good sample of everything in that location right not really i would or say this is just people who right. responded right okay these were just how special. Many, i can't tell you how many parents. consultations i've had that i was lied to during the consultation and i figured it out later and i'm 
wouldn't be surprised if people reporting this data had the same motivation to, to, to lie for some sort of personal, you know, like achievement internal, like I didn't, I didn't mess up that I don't, I've never had viruses. I mean, I, I know people like that. So I know that this oh, data could were, definitely just, be. Just to clarify, these were like uh, taxonomic specialists and things like that. Not like uh, growers necessarily. Oh, got it. Okay. Gotcha. So they right. probably have and, less of that, but that's an important thing to consider because I will agree a hundred percent that in my experience personally and the experience of other folks that I know doing similar things and just growers. Um, yeah, I've, I was just having a conversation with somebody actually about how, how uh, because of the way that their system works, um, they're like, Hey, you have this pathogen obviously. And they're like, yeah, just like you said, like, no, I disagree. I don't think that's the case. Also, you know, what are you going to do about it? And that's really corrosive and it's more common uh -huh. than you think. It's, it's the, uh, we don't have a virus and you're fired move. Uh-huh. Yes. It's a, let's not talk about this anymore, mm -hmm. but anyways, um, a little bit less, uh, subtexting here, but, <laughs> but yeah, I'll agree. So in this case, I think we have less of that problem. In fact, this is kind of helpful for people who want to get accurate or more accurate information. I would say that, um, I think it was 148 participants. I think it was a little bit higher than some of the information had to be, uh, or some of the responses were um, were taken out. Uh, I think in some cases it was because they admitted at the end of the survey that they uh, didn't know certain things or whatever, and that made it uh, uh, unlikely that their responses were accurate or something like that. That's a little cryptic response, but um, they explained it in the supplementary material. Anyways, Biggest numbers here for the fungal group are, of course, Botrytis budrot uh, at about 75%, and in five all five regions, powdery mildew at 70%, all five regions. We have also uh, Circospora leaf spot. Leaf spot is something that isn't talked about as much because it's a little bit more uh, indiscreet. I'm sorry, it's a little bit more nondescript and sort of discreet. So unlike powdery mildew and botrytis that are a little bit more obvious to kind of tell what they are, or if not botrytis, just simply bud rot, which is an important point here. Somebody might get bud rot and think it's botrytis, but they might not have done the, the rigorous things necessary to know whether it's a different kind of bud rot fungus or botrytis specifically. So that's something you're just going to have to trust about, but I wouldn't be surprised. Fusarium. Uh, this is oh. like this leaf spot I've heard of before, but what is the identifying? Like, how would I? I wouldn't know how to identify leaf spot in a plant other than there's a lot. There's a lot of like leaf spot type kind of fungi too. So, so if I'm being honest, like I might see something go, oh yeah, that kind of looks like circospora, but it might be I don't know pseudo circospora or something. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Because I would think like for Fusarium, I, I, I know now that was a new or newer one, but now I'm like getting more used to being able to see Fusarium in leaves. Um, is it similar to Fusarium, this this leaf spot? No, I think so, like, I think somewhat. It's like brown. Usually, if I'm remembering correctly, the 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 uh, the symptoms are like kind of like a brown lesion, and a lot of things cause that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, more yellow like, or brown rust like color around the edges, right, but Brandon? It looks more like uh, calcium spotting than anything. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's frustrating. It's different than looks different than fusarium or a little bit, uh, a little bit, a little bit different. From, yeah, where it has a little spot where it'll have like a circle. It'll uh, it'll become necrotic. 
the karate yeah, kid. Yeah, does it like have a like a violet? Do you know if it has a violet? Um, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but like uh, some some of these leaf spotting uh, fungal pathogens have like a like a violet ring, and some don't, for example. So that can be helpful too for discriminating. Um, calcium tends to start on the the lower leaves too. So if you see a calcium imbalance or deficiency, that tends to be on the oldest leaves first. I don't know if leaf spot um, is different, but probably it is. I don't know. But it's important to note that sometimes the beginning of a pathogen infection can look a lot like some of these nutrient deficiencies too. And different cultivars might be more or less um, sensitive. So the symptomology can be a little bit different too, for that matter. So, so I mean, so so it's like a question of like said septoria is that a leaf spot disease, or is it yeah. still yeah? I would I would I would I would consider it like that. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think. Do they even say here? Yeah, septoria leaf spot. Yeah, for example. Yeah, and this, yeah lower something. Down, so if you, if you know that you have a proper like soil and tissue ranges, like Brandon tested soil and tissue analysis, and if the calcium's in proper range, and you're seeing that spotting, or if you're testing your EC in and out, and everything's looking like it's in proper range, and you're starting to see that, maybe it would be more of a sign that you might have septoria or some sort of other leaf spot um, pathogen, versus you know just a little bit of a nutrient imbalance. There are labs that test for this kind of thing too. Um, exactly. a, a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also to note on the graph, we have that, uh, you know, we have fusarium a few times, but we have this fusarium damping off and fusarium as a canker or as basal rot. Now, now, and then we have like fusarium will. These are all, these could be different kinds of fusarium. So here we're, it's kind of, ranking them as where they're attacking the plant, which is oftentimes, although not always, it can be like a different type of fusarium species like oxysporum, for example. Um, but there's other kinds of fusarium. So damping off would be associated with like seedling death mostly. Whereas the canker or the basal rot is probably referring to um, like the, like a, like a more mature stem becoming rotted out. And then um do we have fusarium for, okay, a quick a quick check says no. Like you can also get it in like the root system, for example. We have fusarium as a bud mold or a head blight though. And so that would imply that they somehow, that they knew the difference between that and like botrytis, for example. But they can look similar to the, to the naked eye, even to a trained eye. Does fusarium smell sweet? Because I know um, the other one does smell sweet. Not to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean another person wouldn't. I remember, though, working uh, with the Gerber growers uh, in particular, I felt like I could smell the powdery mildew somewhat because it had a very, like, farinaceous, almost like a melon-like smell, I feel like, kind of a like a starchy smell almost. Now, I don't know if that's just because they were colonizing the... Uh, the Gerber leaves in particular or what? Um, but I felt like I did get like a unique smell that I associated with it. Maybe it's all uh, psychosomatic. I don't know. <laughs> I know with Botrytis, at least they make like Botrytis sized wines and things like that to uh, sweeten the flavor. And um, they can even be considered like higher end in certain circles. People go for that almost like a blue cheese using like molds and things like that for uh, taste or flavor elements that are unique and different. So I think it's interesting that you can definitely... Um, 
smell certain ones. And I, I think I'm thinking of Botrytis cinerea. I might be mispronouncing that, but yeah, scenario, there's, a, yep. there's a few different uh, types of that one, but I think that's the most common in cannabis. And I do think I forgot to uh, introduce Brandon Rust when he jumped in. So if Brandon, you want to take a second to let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah, sure. What's going on, everybody? Brandon Rust, uh, quick intro. Uh, yeah, but you can find me on IG. Most of you guys already know what, uh, know me and stuff, so. We also have, uh, yeah, picking up where we left off. I wanted to ask one more oh, question sorry, before I pass back to you, Matthew. Um, with the damping off, would the, that be something that they're, they're seeing in clones or just seedlings? And uh, is that something that you tend to also find in clones? Or is that more of a seedling thing for the uh, Fusarium? Fusarium is soup uh, on the whole, even outside of cannabis, it's very common to get like damping off with Fusarium. Like, and there could be all kinds of reasons you might want to say as a cause, but, but by and large, Fusarium is very commonplace as a, as a pathogen. And when the seedlings are just starting out, um, obviously there are things you can do to, to make it less of a problem, right? That's the whole point of IPM. But like, uh, uh, just starting out seedling, maybe it happens to ha be that the seedling is particularly weak too. You know, that just is going to happen, right? Statistically, that, that can be a factor. Uh, if you get to wound, somehow like maybe it gets desiccated uh in some some capacity or maybe it gets burned by a nutrient or something that doesn't necessarily kill it but weakens it somewhat that can also make it more likely to be a problem too so um again in all kinds of crops like if you're just sowing a bunch of seed like you know some percentage of them might get colonized by fusarium and you might even see like in a field you know you can look down and see like wow like this splotch of the field seems to have a lot of fusarium or symptoms of it whereas another section for whatever reason doesn't another uh, pathogen we have here is alternaria which i also posted about recently that was also found at around almost 60 percent and so, and for that matter, the fusarium and, and the um, and the circospora leaf spot were all found pretty high, pretty high percentages. So to me, that tells me that if you grow in the U.S. and you haven't considered some of these pathogens before as a problem, most people have heard of powdery mildew or botrytis, but they might not have heard of circospora or they might not have heard of alternaria. Although those are really common in other crops, you know, that might be a thing that people should become more familiar with just as a, as a heads up. I think also you pretty much they, everything here that was a red or a yellow, uh, I, honestly, I would say everything, right? But, um, you know, if you had to have a direction to point yourself towards. The, uh, I just got all my labels and stuff um, registered for the trichoderma and the bacillus subtilis. And, and I didn't register them as uh, biocontrols. I just registered them as beneficial soil microbes. But the, that combination of Bacillus subtilis and Trichoderma works amazing for uh, out-competing pathogens. What species of Trichoderma and what strain, if you know it? It's T22. Okay, yeah, that's a pretty, that's what a lot of people, uh, I, I often find this in, there's all kinds of research reports where when they're doing Trichoderma research, it's on the T22 strain. So you can definitely yeah. find a lot of info on them. And it's a uh, it's a pretty well recognized uh, strain. It's pretty available and has a great pedigree. Uh, that's what I can speak to it. 
Yeah, Harzianum T22. It's also known for uh, the Sedia Ford production, which helps with the iron uh, uptake. But they work Moving even better. Moving on, we have... Oh, there's no, a product going. called Recharge um, that I, I still use to this day here and there. Uh, I like it for in veg, but it's like an all-in-one. It's not only um, the uh, micros, but it's got some other ingredients. So that's why I kind of am leaning more towards what Brandon's offering, where you get the single. You get to pick what you want and, and apply what you want instead of having the whole shebang. But that is a really good product that has both of those. And I noticed the same thing that Brandon's talking about. I because I think it's because I was using that and in the research I've seen that when you have soils with both those present, it just helps you so much with with uh, with these soil-borne uh, pathogens anyway. Doesn't trichoderma tend to win out over most other bacteria after a certain amount of time? Like if you add a slew of things. Fungus. So the thing with this, this trichoderma. This particular species parasitizes other fungi. Um, uh, fungi, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, but what you'll see is you'll see synergy synergy with like Bacillus subtilis because the the mm. Bacillus will actually colonize the fungal filaments and they'll work synergistically together. So what you typically see is you see an increase in a, in efficacy when you have both of them present together. Another thing to keep in mind is that although I'm a big fan of uh, at least recognizing that a consortium of different microbes can be incredibly like specific and so like kind of teasing out the different effects and abilities and capabilities of different microbe groups can be really hard and challenging uh, to do i will say that it's nice that there are there are species and strains like for example the t22 here where you can pretty much expect it to work well independently or in concert it plays nicely uh, with other other certain other microbes so like Obviously, like in nature, it's going to be way more complicated, but it's nice to be able to count on a specific effect that is pretty reliable and not one that is um, that, that relies very heavily on having like the right mixture of other other microbes for obvious reasons. Right. So, yeah, I definitely agree with that point. But uh, I'll try to get through this uh, a little bit quicker, basically. For those who've been watching, um, a lot of these are at least 40%. So if I go down a, a few other groups that were mentioned, uh, we have sclerotinia, which is another necrotroph like botrytis. Um, we have anthracnose and uh, colidotrichum, which are also really common pathogens in other crops. And that was, these were also found in all five regions at around 45% of respondents. We have rhizoctonia, also really common. We have these articulated as damping off and stem canker, which are different, not different species necessarily, but different uh, ways that it infiltrates the plant. And so it's interesting to note because damping off usually happens earlier in the life cycle of the plant, right? So that was found pretty commonly and it's about as common as a regular stem canker from like a wound. We have uh, Botryosphera, which I don't have a whole lot of um, experience with myself, which is another reason why this is great, because although I would consider myself rather experienced, and specifically in the cannabis space, I don't know every experience, and there's going to be experiences that I just don't encounter, but other people do. So I'm not, 
I'm humble enough to mention that, but I think it's not really humble. It's just like being uh, realistic about how observation bias and personal biases can cloud your judgment. So we have FOMA blight as well, uh, but these were found around, um, yeah, also kind of around 35, 40%. Verticillium wilt is also really common in other crops. Charcoal rot, I don't have a lot of experience with. And then we have here rust. So I when I saw this here, I was curious what species that they meant was. And in the top of my head, I don't remember, actually. But there is, I believe, a cannabis rust species. I don't remember the name. Um, but uh, they found this in four different regions. And I feel like it doesn't get talked about very much. So that's one that I would like to point out that um, as cannabis cultivation increases, obviously all of these pests in the cannabis space are likely to increase, but this one in particular, I feel like doesn't get a lot of attention and also hasn't been uh, researched very heavily as well. So I think we'll see a lot more of that coming up. And just a few honorable mentions, we have um, not really much I really want to talk about actually, but to the Rhizoctonia web or aerial blight, that means that they were finding the Rhizoctonia not around the roots or the stem, but in the foliage, which is neat. On the B side, we have a really high 60% in all five regions, Pythium wilt, or damping off. Pythium, huge problem. It's an oomycete, so it's not a fungus. I definitely hear people in the space refer to them as that, but that's been outmoded for um, longer than I've been alive, so don't call it a fungus. <laughs> then we have Phythophthora, which is also really common um, in other crops, also found in all five regions, also downy mildew, um, so yeah, these are oomycetes. These are like fungi, but they're not quite, and they are really, really, um, they, they infect all kinds of plants. So they're very voracious as a, as a pathogen, and kind of hard to deal with, to be honest. A highlight here, we have phytoplasma. Phytoplasmas are a type of bacteria that's very small. And you've probably heard me talk about the citrus screening disease, which is a huge problem in citrus, obviously. Uh, really um, smashed the crap out of the uh, citrus in California and Florida, and also parts of China. But there's also phytoplasmas that infect cannabis, and there's been research on my channel. I have videos about it found in like places like Nevada, in places like Iran as well. So they get around, and I would expect this to sort of increase. Right now, it was only found in two regions and at less than 10%. But to be honest, this is looking like about 8%, which is way higher than um, I would have expected actually from the research that I've seen. So be careful about that. And I'm gonna stop talking for a moment and let give other people a chance to speak, so. That was dope, thanks Matt, good review. No, it's okay. What kind of stuff are you seeing in Oklahoma, uh, Brandon and Aaron, uh, being that you guys are both on the commercial side of things, what are you seeing about, uh, seeing and hearing? I was actually very the, curious about that, that too. So we get, uh, we get for outdoors, when we're talking about pathogens, we get the uh, leaf sepatora really badly out here. It's super, super common. Um, and I think it might have something to also do with maybe the fact that we have a lot of leaf chewers, uh, leaf hoppers, tiny little grasshoppers that go from we plant to plant. We have crickets and grasshoppers and 
that that's probably the most impactful outdoors yeah grasshoppers that's really interesting because i was reading about that uh several months ago in colorado that people were getting mollywopped by grasshoppers and locusts so this year is a this year is a cicada year so both species of cicadas will be in full force this year so yeah it's like a triple witching like two They only come out every seven and 14 years and they coincide this time. Is that what's happening? That's, That's exactly right. It only right. happens yeah. every it's like 320 yeah. years. We're gonna, they're going to be singing mm -hmm. us to sleep at night, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah, night, good man. night. Make sure to invest in a nice pillow. Yeah, I agree. But this indoors, is pretty fascinating. Indoors, I've seen pretty much everything. spider mites and russet mites. And I mean, pretty much everything you would see indoors everywhere else, it seems like. I've seen a lot of russet. Russet's got russet has been. I've seen that be pretty bad. Mm -hmm. That's always bad everywhere, wherever it goes. It's a. I'm pain really in the ass. fortunate. My my garden. The worst thing that I deal with is fungus gnats. That's you know pretty that's much. That's because you like, got a good uh, IPM, Brandon. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Day that does help. IPM helps. Yes, exactly. You too can be like Brandon if you, uh, yeah, have a good IPM SOP. And, so, uh, dude, and mine is so tight. It's yeah. like yeah. no matter how tight you get, something always happens. I think that's the best. No, but you see, Aaron, it's because obviously you don't know that um, you're just not good enough and your plants aren't right. healthy enough. Yeah. And that's why you suck. That's why you no, suck, Aaron. I, and you'll it's never true. have to buy my it's book. True. To be and, and, than that. Yeah. and we all suck because if, if you've never had a bug, then you really can't say you've you've grown. But There's yeah, there's I mean, definitely lots lots of bugs out there and um you can you pretty much like, fight them like, all very like similarly. A pro, pro tip for anybody who's dealing with bugs, right now is the perfect time to reset and clean while it's cold out because if mm -hmm. you can kill everything inside, you're most likely not going to bring anything in from the outside because it's so cold right now, so it's a great time to really get on your IPM or even if you need to just reset and clean everything out. Oh, here's a tip too. 110%. A spray bottle of isopropyl alcohol near your grow before you enter or before you work with your plants is a really great for yourself, not for your plants. Um, is a really great protocol every time you go in and out. Biosecurity. The Aaron, I was going to say, you should be like the guys on the survey and not admit it to it. Say, I never had a bug. It's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously. I've never seen yeah. a bug. I don't know what they look like. You can tell, help you can tell I'm the best grower the, ever because I've never had bugs and I just grow the correct way. And if you grow the correct way, you will be <laughs> yeah. like me. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. think with any worst, IPM, the, the best IPM that I've is ever just had. layers. You just layer it up. Just layer it up to do more than one thing. Do more to different modes of action, and I think that's the key to your best IPM. Um, that's definitely yeah, a, yeah, yeah, the kitchen like, sink technique, keep exactly. it complex like the world. Yeah, I'm excited mm -hmm. in about a week, I'll be able to talk more about it. But I've, I've oh, yeah, yeah, working right. with GML, and Matthew, I think, has got a little bit of inside information on this too. You should but... tell him to uh, you should tell him to interview me because we've been trying to get that scheduled so. I'll have I'll we, we said we would and then uh things got ahead of them, I think. And plus that you had to um delay a little bit, but uh yeah, that's coming up, isn't it? Yeah, this next week we're gonna talk about it. We're gonna do start our pre-launch 
uh, to start taking pre-orders on the 27th. So it's um, it's just one more thing that can, can help. It'll be, it can add to your IPM. Like you're saying, another layer, right, Spartan? Exactly. When I hear it might be, if it's as effective as uh, understandable, then it might do a lot more than, you know. I'm really can you fill me in on what you guys are talking about? It's a, uh, it's a new, I can give away some stuff. I can't say everything, but it's a new underlighting that we're going to be. Launching. Oh, I've and seen every single lighting company dropping new underlighting recently. Well, it's this Miami is Mango. not, this is, this is an IPM where, and it's IPM called, the, it's called the Tarantula oh. Predator and it is UVC light that you use in the UVC literally <laughs> literally um damages the D- dna of some of these bugs um so it's not like like mode of action isn't like a chemical you're not spraying things probably and not friendly with that, beneficials though i got no, one it, of it's re- replacing one beneficials those, those uh. circle lights those ipm circle lights that, but that's 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 very similar. weak they didn't they didn't use we we're using we're i can't give away everything but i'm just saying that that one is very weak and ineffective the design was way not great either um, exciting dude Thanks yeah for so this thing is just another thing that makes life a little easier for growers and also it's hopefully going to if not replace it's going to reduce spraying by probably 80 90 even in commercial so that's exciting that's a win for the industry if you ask me and well, then we have Aaron, the final did... i'm sorry oh, what's up tom I was just going to say, did Aaron was the one that asked about the beneficial if it kills beneficials? It does, right? Absolutely. I don't I know, but I haven't you, tested it, but I absolutely would expect it to. Yeah, but I would. You, I would you, you use that. beneficials, right, Aaron? Which ones do you? Uh, oh, I would give up beneficials in a heartbeat if I had a light. I mean, if you don't have that. to pay the expense, right? Like, well, the right. thing I, is, is, I mean, you're paying in, in electricity or you're paying in a subscription for bugs, but um, you know. If if I don't have to have bug poop potential on my plants ever, I think that's probably the right, best case scenario. So let me know when you guys start a sponsorship program. I'm ready. <laughs> I bet you, if you do it right, you can, if you just start up, you know, have it in the veg area, it would it would eliminate them all throughout everywhere. There's so many applications. It's like we yeah. even think of just uh, a quarantine yeah. clone container, right? Yeah. So you're worried about bringing in a cut from your buddy. And blast that sucker with some UV treatments on top of whatever else you're doing. You're going to make sure that you're not going to bring else in. Is there any danger to human eyes or skin or anything like that? Very dangerous. Yes. Eyes and skin. Um, The solution is, is you run this, don't run it during the light cycle. You run it during the lights off right after lights go off. So nobody's in the room anyway with the lights off and you don't run it for long periods of time either because UV is dangerous, even to the plants. We've tested it for, quite long periods of time up to 12 hours but 12 hours was very damaging to the plants <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we're talking minutes now is it right? true you run these things you run these thing for minutes that you don't run it for yeah it's a dose response there's other exactly. uv lights that work similar but i'm i'm curious um do you know they're doing some research uh with a university right they're trying to yeah. quantify some of this info right yeah so, yeah there'll be some more info out about it, it sounds like which is cool. I'm a wait and see kind of person. And I'm definitely curious to see because it might kill some stuff, but I'd be hesitant to believe that it can kill everything. Bugs are very resilient and smart and they'll climb and creep up into the little crevices where the light doesn't hit. And I think that That's you're going to have to do, do layers. Yeah. You, you want to give up your, your other IPM techniques. 
No, I on top of agree. I think well, so, it's a, so, a tool in a tool belt. Yeah, except exactly. for your beneficial yeah. bugs, you do have to give those up. <laughs> yes. Or maybe or you, you would could... have them, and they would still work, but they might be at a reduced efficacy. Um, That's what some I was people say. might employ something sure. like that. Applying but it I agree, in a sachet, probably not worth it. Above the, if it's above Art that first your... capy layer, I just you always use try... them in outbreaks. You could use them to to take care of an outbreak if you had an outbreak. You could not only increase the duration of your UV treatments, but you could also bring in a spray. You could also bring in predator, like say it was spider mites. You could bring in persimilis, which are very effective, especially in larger numbers to reduce that spider mite population and then clean up with just UV at the end and it'll clean up your predators too. Actually, this brings up a good point about like the kitchen seek technique. Mm -hmm. it's, it's usually a good idea, but you can sometimes wind up canceling one thing out with another thing, you know? On top of that, it might be too expensive. So, yeah, like, there's an, there's definitely an incentive to have a streamlined um, treatment apparatus, a maximum complexity without with like minimum cost. So that could be, you know, that could be this way, right? It's sort of a hybrid think, solution. Uh, yeah, I think that would be great. The light should be great for like you saying clones or small areas that you can definitely make sure. Penetrate it doesn't need to be a small area in in holland they're doing greenhouses they have uvcs on booms that get swept over the entire plant for the entire yeah that'll get in all the nooks and crannies too you know it's, it's been implemented so i mean it's it has been working in other places for works. they're doing it for, for molds, and pests. right so it's it's not a new technology but it's good to see it being implemented in multiple ways I safety just, uh, though because i've heard some pretty scary stories like one story was the dude worked at an office and he really fucking hated, sorry, he really hated his co-worker. And I don't know if he got fired or whatever, but he replaced the bulb right above the guy's head with a UVC light. And the guy got cancer in like, you know, whatever, six months or something like that. That's terrible. <laughs> wow. I also wonder, like we've mentioned in the past. Well, these also have a safety on, like our design has a safety. They won't run for longer than 15 minutes and then they auto shut off until they're unplugged and plugged back in. So it's like, there's a safety in there to prevent it, like any long exposures, even though we recommend not to be exposed at all. But you have a good lawyer, I presume. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, you know, th they use, they're using those UVC lights and a whole bunch of applications since the virus. Whether or not it's effective, I don't know because they have them in ductwork now. Well, they've been using them in ductwork for even before that in labs. Right, and, that's true. In hospitals, so I mean, they they use it. I just remember the um, long time. I just remember the the Bitcoin or the Ethereum people or whatever. They had like a, an event recently, and they wanted their lights to be super cool, um, but they used like UVB lights or something, and like they burned <laughs> the retinas of the people who went there and. It was not a good look. You guys can look it up if you're interested. But yeah, I mean, so be careful. But obviously, if you know what you're buying, this is different because they didn't know. It, well, you know, the people went going there, they didn't know until it was too late. So I would also wonder, we talked off about the difference between like indoor versus outdoor or indoor versus greenhouse. And like the sun obviously has a, some of the UV. I don't think UVC is hitting most places if at all on the earth's surface but a little bit of uv b and a in the spectrum depending on what part of the planet you're at um i'm curious if there'd be some sort of dna change or reaction in the plant from being exposed to uv at all often or just more often than regular from a different angle and things like that i think yeah, yeah. We do know cannabinoids I think you would change the longer, when exposed the to uv 
Yeah, I think for sure the longer exposure. In fact, there's we're testing now. I think it's I'm not doing the test, but somebody else on our team is doing a test to see if cannabinoids increase. Yeah, with, the dude grows with over. 15 minute exposures after I think they said the last two weeks of flowers, what the test they're doing. But yeah, I have heard nothing yet. Doc Doc says that it's not it doesn't make a difference, right? Dr. MJ, I believe it would. I think you read, I think everything the sun gives the plant, you want to give the plant personally, if you can. But like what Jack's saying is UVC doesn't usually reach the surface of the earth. So plants aren't usually seeing UVC. They almost, yeah, it's because of the, yeah, the earth does, the earth blocks UVC. There you go. Plus plus by that logic, that means you think that the, that uh, the magnetosphere of the earth all the all the really high powered stuff you should just beam that right into the plant. Well, you and you had said Matthew that some bugs really don't like UV and they just go underneath the leaf. That's why they hang out underneath, right? Oh yeah, no, and I mean yeah. that is it's that's it's why our great. lights are under under canopy. It lights is why the UV yeah. lights are helpful. Yeah, because they they're literally Field. Yeah. it's basically shooting a photon sized cannon. Oh. Yeah. at the bug and it, it penetrates through their body and it it's so small that it literally um uh basically dis disintegrates the chains of dna and other stuff <laughs> so you do that enough times and the plant or whatever organism is being exposed to the uv but in this case the insects um you know, or microbes, for example, fungi don't really like UV for this reason too. That's what I was so say. It goes through them, close to the soil. It, it rips them apart at the genetic level, so that's not great for your overall health generally. Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. What is the real danger? What if we're what if we're exposed? What happens? You start bleeding uh, well, out of the eyeballs, the or like. You. Well, yeah. so these are. I don't want to go into the exact wattages and stuff, but the, the diodes that we have in ours and, and at the watts that they're running, you'd have to be within a few inches of it, probably six or seven inches of it to get in, in for the short period of time that they're on and be exposed at all time on a daily basis, I think to be in a super big danger, but I wouldn't be like where our recommendation is not to even be in the room and <clears throat> the way I'm running it, I'm not even using a timer. I physically have to go down there, plug it in, set a timer on my phone. When the timer goes off, I go over and unplug it. I'm not in the room during this time. The plug goes outside of the room. It's a long plug. Mm. And so, uh, and you know, they're daisy chainable. So it's still one plug and I can just plug it in and, and treat my whole room. I'm not even in the room when it's, when it's going off. And I, I've, I've done that like- so that I have to be outside the room to even plug it in or plug it out. You know what I mean? I can't be in the room and plug it in. The plug is not in that room. <laughs> but you've looked in the room, right? So to see where the light was hidden or, you know, poked your eyeballs in there once, it's fine. Correct. I cracked. Yeah, I've done. I've cracked the door to see if, because it, it does emit a light. So in a dark room, you can just crack the door and, and see if there's right. a light coming from out of the room. Make sure it's focused where you want it to be. No, I do that during the day. So during the light cycle, when I'm right, watering right, my plants, right, right. They're adjustable too, so you can move them and adjust them every day, so they don't focus the same way every day, if you like. Ah, so that's what. Uh, that's that's a good what idea. I, that's just what I've been doing anyway. I do yeah, feel yeah. like if you're going to use a light like that, that what you just said is very smart to like, you know, to kind of get like a different uh, exposure pattern. Essentially, you're dosing instead of with like 
you know, liquid, you're dosing with photons, right? So just think of it as like a spray, but it, it kind of goes in a straight line and bounces around. <laughs> Is there any protective gear that you could wear to, to like go in and, and use this as like an applicator They across have, your canopy? uh, so there's other lights that you do the same kind of thing. Um, I think there's a light from, was it called clean light? Something Yeah, Cam, like that. Cangro used to use it, and you'd have Yeah. like Clean light. orange glasses. Like you see at like the uh, dentist office sometimes when they have some of these UVCs that I think sterilize the dental tools and things like that. I think if you wear a certain type of uh, gloves and... But you still don't want to point it directly at yourself. Um, it's one of those things that I think is probably best done. I think, like how Spartan is saying, remotely, uh, plugging it in from a different room and uh, not being exposed at all. Ideally, I think even if you're doing like a handheld one and pointing it away from you, it's uh, sort of a little bit too close for my comfort. And I guess some people are more at risk for cancer specifically than uh, others. But I wouldn't want your DNA to be... messed with for any reason because i think it could uh not just affect things like cancer but other bodily functions so it's uh certainly an option but definitely one to be careful with it's not like you just like with anything you should do your research and use it safely Yeah, with any tool you want to do it the the correct way to get to be the most effective. And uh, i the, agree the that the like day being that I was most convinced, besides seeing it with my own eyes, was when uh, Matthew went to GML's garden to check it himself for thrips because I saw because I was following along. He, you know, we we're friends. We go back and forth on DMs all day long, and uh, so he's showing me his garden that was like. It was funny because he was asking people for thrips with that. I don't know if people are following his. He posts a lot, but he was asking for thrips, and it, it's funny to ask for thrips from growers. But and eventually, spider mites yeah, yeah it's spider I thought mites. that So was eventually, hilarious <laughs> like eventually a few got years them, and eventually, it looked like he had so much trouble getting stuff i kept seeing posts and like kind are you of guys illegal serious that's nobody's probably got why any to send me huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not it's uh not something the uh, usda afphis is uh aphis the usda aphis is not really looking to encourage that kind of behavior plus he's in vancouver right so It would be international as well for a lot of people in the U.S. Well, you don't break what's in the package on the customs paper, Matthew. So do you think No. that is, is that what you think? Do you think that it doesn't get looked at? Do you Well, think there isn't an apparatus to check you don't, for that? you You don't think want it's to just put on yourself the honor system, out. Hal? You don't want to, you don't want to call yourself <laughs> out if you have to Hal mail may, something. may or may not have experience with uh, shipping other Yeah. things internationally. That shouldn't be Yeah, shipped internationally. well. <laughs> Hypothetically, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly, hypothetically. <laughs> In Minecraft, someone <laughs> who isn't me. It's when I heard when I heard reported back that Matthew didn't find any trips in that in that garden after I saw how thick the garden was and how infested it was at one point. It, it had been, to be fair, I think Matthew got there at least thirty days after it was really infected. But was uh, I was this yeah, surprised. I didn't see Treatment? any thrips. I saw Yeah, some I was. damage from thrips, but I didn't see any thrips myself. In that uh in that uh In that room that He's got you like a little. couldn't he have also sprayed some like noxious ass poison like did we test it for That's I mean, true. I guess so. That's I that's didn't an test option. anything. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. Is is this grow being tested by Health Canada? Is it going underneath any standards that It you went know cuz to actually it went to Bubble Man and it's getting made into five star, hopefully five star uh, full met bubble house right now. But will that go to market? Will it be tested 
under oh, any sort of plants scrutiny. Flowering. I have no, I don't know. I can ask. Oh no, they were flowering. I'm sorry, that's true. They were pretty nice. They looked pretty. Just, just like know, to be the I ultimate noticed... skeptic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I know. One thing I noticed about the plant was that, um, is that the, uh, it seemed like because I didn't see it, I didn't see the lights flaring for uh, for the last twenty minutes reasons, right? Like we don't want to get any exposure, but it seemed like the orientation of the lights. And this is something I wanted to talk to him about when we finally do the the interview. Is um, I feel like the the plants actually reacted by producing like anthocyanins or like because you could see a violet, a purpling coloration that was kind of like in a pattern that matched the orientation of the lights. If you can the believe bars. it, uh, you know. Absolutely, so I that makes sense because outdoors yeah. highlight like really highlight top of the mountain, you know. 2400 feet we saw so much purple just with so so little atmosphere and so much uv exposure purple everywhere i mean everything went purple even if it was warm you know if you had told me about it i would have had the exact same response like that seems really plausible but like really and but yeah like that's the only i mean that's the explanation that comes to my head maybe there's something more to it but yeah it was kind of neat and so that's what made me feel like the light was um at least being uh used but um, well, in this case, the the people want purple weed. <laughs> you know, some of that was actually what was interesting, if I remember right. So I didn't take any pictures, but what I remember is that um, actually most of the purpling was on the top side, where the light wasn't going to directly hit. But some of it was actually happening like on the midrib, if I remember right, which is like that's part of what was sort of surprising to me. Was also surprising to me is that. Um, I don't, you know, because there are other, there are definitely other UV lights out there, so like green light, for example. Um, and you know, I'm just not sure how similar that is for like others, or if you could replicate it with another light. Uh, ostensibly, yes, right. Um, but like, yeah, it was just an interesting thing to. It's just a really to, to see. Also, the flower, although I don't know how much the UV light was related to this, the flower was really chunky too. Uh, for whatever that's worth. I believe, if I remember, it was the death. It might have been the death bubble he was running then. You know, it might enhance uh, cabinet noise unknowingly, right? There's also it would definitely. It I mean, it could definitely degrade them or change them. It I could, say it, it could, could go either it way. Could affect ones yeah. that are already produced, as well as maybe incite the production of others. I suppose. Yeah. It might increase. Yes. It might increase oil production, right? So it might increase things like maybe some. One terpene, but then reduce uh, maybe one might be a trade off. And but it's underlighting, so hopefully most of it won't be hidden. Like the trichomes head on at least. I guess if you have really trichy stems, they'll get hit. But I mean, anthocyanin it tends to be a desirable production within the plant. I mean, who's to say that shining this light on top of the buds isn't going to produce some some oils or terpenes that that would be desirable? It'll be. And that's why we but will it be the same as what you were trying involved. to get at the end is my question because if it does have if it does change things up maybe you're ex if you're expecting a certain end result and you get something different different could be better different might be worse than what you were expecting or it could good be point. just whatever just but yeah that's a good point yeah. i mean for sure we know that it works on on what the tension of the light was and that's for it to be basically re a replacement for predator bugs. Yeah, it's just a predator mm -hmm. light. Um, and these other things are like 
to be determined. We, we haven't really focused a lot of our attention on, is it going to increase cannabinoids or, or terpenes or any of that? There's some evidence that shows that it may, but we're not making those claims yet. We've kind of, all of our kind of efforts have been on, does it work on, on bugs and what, but and honestly, in my case, I've tested on several different bugs and I think it works the best against thrips. And the one that was the toughest is spider mites. Spider mites surprisingly were pretty tough against it. They're well, really thrips tough, are yeah. really hard to get rid of with like any kind of biological. I know that's what I loved or, about thrips. That, that's like, a really killer. I mean, like you could have this light and only use it when thrips came up. You know, if you have true. predator bugs, you know. Yeah, that's a good. Point. Anyway, I have mites? to. Oh, sorry. I'm so, you, good question. Go ahead. I was just going to say with spider. So what we were testing was using that light only as an IPM. And so for me to get rid of the spider mites in the garden, I had to also spray. I sprayed Lost Coast Plant, the Lost Coast Plant Therapy. And then with the combo, the lights are IP66, so they're waterproof uh, anyway. So you can spray with them in there. And uh, with the combo, yes, it did get rid of the spider mites, but it, it took the combo. It basically was just keeping them at like a, a lower level where they weren't really webbing. They were just hanging out and eating the leaves still. But uh, that's not good enough for me. I want them dead. <laughs> I want them dead. And so, yeah, then I, I had to spray. And uh, with the combo of, of the spray and the light, I did get rid of them. Killer. I've had oh, you getting going, Aaron? Yeah, I got it. I got to go. I got dinner to eat and more more leaves to default. So. <laughs> well, it was good to see um, you again, man. A farm life. You Come too. again soon. I will. I will. I'm going to try and make an effort to, to be here at least for an hour, you know, like, you know, once a month or something, you know, I'll, I'm going to do my best. It's crazy. I, I'm the only guy here. So, you know, I'm, I run the shit show. It's a circus, but um, I'll be here as often as I can. I, I uh, love and miss you guys dearly. And um, thank you guys for having me and accepting me back into the family, even though I've been black sheep for a while. And uh <laughs> Well, I'd like to get some of the so you can pay us back by giving us some of your insights uh, from your from your growing experience. I'm very interested. Sure, sure, and I've definitely learned a lot. So there's a lot to share, um, but um, and I'll try and make it uh, grooved for the home grower as best I can. Um, but yeah, maybe okay. we'll do that one of these times when I'm coming back. Um, talk about all this crap. Right now, I'm dealing with the state. They're, they're yes. trying to, to shut small farms down, man. It's, it's sad in Oklahoma. It really is. If any, you know, <laughs> there's any good lawyers out there that, that want a good case, there's a fucking class action waiting on this. So anyway, holler at me or be Russ for that. And, um, I am Aaron, the grower that's ATG acres on Instagram and atgacres.com. Thank you guys for having me. Love y'all. Girls love, man. Good to see you. Peace you out, too. Aaron. Later, Tao. Later, Jack. Three rest. Matt. Spartan. See you guys. Peace out, Aaron. Cheers. You know, we uh, should probably get the research done. Um, I bet there's a bunch of people. I have not seen chat at all. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they're just riffing on our convo. But um, uh, yeah, I should probably at least finish this up. We were having a good conversation, though. Absolutely. Well, okay. Well, let me start. Well, let me just end here. Actually, this was kind of a juicy section here. This was some of the, so the virus is the pathogen section here in this graph. Um, beet curly top virus is like close to 40%. And this was in all five regions. 
uh, of incidents. So I, I, I swear BCTV is, it's going to be, it's going to get worse. It's, uh, it's not going to get better soon because viruses are generally not conventionally treatable. Um, and beet curly top virus is super common in like peppers and tomatoes and a bunch of other plants, including plants that we don't cultivate. So it could be like just somewhere in on a plant nearby to you, especially if you're growing outdoors. I'd be most concerned if you're growing like not indoor in some way, like a greenhouse. I would still be somewhat concerned because it's primarily passed by the beet leafhopper. So if you're in North America, And you live in places like, um, I mean, they found it everywhere, right? But to be honest, I've seen reports with cannabis here in Colorado and Nevada, I think Arizona, and maybe New Mexico, if I'm remembering right. And there's other places too, but like, yeah, uh, anywhere that there's like a major agricultural center, I would say BCTV is pretty problematic. And so the beet leafhopper transfers it. The other ones we see, no surprise here, is hoplane virus, and then we have other various viruses, and I don't remember off the top of my head what those were, actually, but um, I actually expected hoplane viroid to be a little bit higher, but one-third, 30%, yeah, that's still pretty high. Yeah, almost one in three growers. Exactly right. Uh, this was an occurrence of fungal diseases in the various areas represented as the percentage of respondents who confirmed the causal pathogens. The key here says that if it's red, then the percent occurrence was greater than 50%. If it's yellow, it's um, less than, greater than 25%, less than or equal to 50%. And if it's blue, it was zero, it was uh, greater than zero, but less than 20, less than or equal to 25% here. And so these are the various places. Um, so it's A is west, uh, B is the Great Plains, C is north central, D is northeast, and E is south. And yeah, so here most of these are like, I don't want to go through all of these, so I'll just give an abbreviated. We got a lot of fusarium bud, uh, bud rot in the head of the plant. We've got fusarium damping off is pretty high. The two biggest ones here, though, are... bipolaris or zonate leaf spot and southern blight which again i'll be honest i don't have a lot of experience with uh with cannabis i have come across these a little bit but not very often but yet here we have the percent occurrence is pretty staggeringly high so other people are encountering it more and not really the people that i'm working with so much but that's this is in the south though for example we go up here a lot of these in, so in the a is the west A lot of these didn't even rate, but the top ones here are powdery mildew, botrytis at 85 and like 83% respectively. Then we have fusarium damping off at about 75%, alternaria at around 60%, fusarium canker or basal rot at about 50%, and then we have rhizoctonia as a damping off or as a stem canker hovering around 40% occurrence, which is interesting. So botrytis, powdery mildew, not surprising. And, uh, you know, I'm already kind of finding this a little bit tedious. Does anyone have any comments to make? I'm going to go to the next diagram. Well, as I look at these, I'm thinking, damn, viruses and fungus, it seems way more of a problem than I imagined in my head is, do you know, just off the top of your head, does this account for more crop loss, these than pests alone, or how much is this?
like I know this is a lot of different molds and leaf spot and all that, but when we think of that as compared to pests, is it even a drop in the bucket compared? Like, are the bugs causing Like, more damage than the viruses? yeah, or is the virus causing more damage than bugs? Which way, or are they 50 50? Or what is, do we know? You know, they don't talk about crop damage, I think, at this one. This is just incidents. But that's an interesting metric, very important, I think, to, to talk about. I feel as though the thing is, is that we can expect viruses to almost always have a lethal effect on whatever plants are being uh, infected. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, so in um so I would say that like I could see for example somebody getting BCTV and maybe it for whatever reason because maybe the beet leaf hopper didn't get everywhere or whatever um you know maybe you only had a section of your crop get it and then but you can have budworm come in and like totally annihilate everything at the very end of the harvest you know everything was fine up until that one point and then orbitritis for example is it can be like that But honestly, I feel like, I, I don't know, it's just speculation, but I think beet curly top virus, if we also look at like other crops like peppers and tomatoes, which are some of the uh, curly top virus strains that are most commonly found in cannabis. So those are the ones that are being found when people do genetic testing in the cannabis space for BCTV. That implies that they're getting it from those populations. They're getting it from beet leafhoppers that either... Uh, the same ones that had it in themselves or they are feeding on the plant as nymphs, I believe, and then uh, they retain it. And then when they become adults, they can fly and they can go greater distances. And so, yeah, I'd be careful if you live near a place that uh, produces plants that VCTV gets to. I'm going to skip this one, too, because it's not as interesting as a diagram. This is the occurrence of basically moths, borers, bugs, aphids, beetles, mites, and other arthropods across all states surveyed and represented as the percentage of respondents who confirmed arthropod pests. So this was interesting to me, this figure five here, because uh, we have, of course, the corn earworm at number one, 75% in all five regions. Uh, then we have some unidentified caterpillars. So several caterpillar species were not identified by the specialists. So there could be some out there that maybe are more than incidental. Several of these species I've come across before in other crops, or I've read about a lot, or I've encountered in cannabis in particular, the biggest one being fall armyworm. Uh, most people have heard of the woolly bears, like the yellow woolly bear. If you, ha if you haven't, if you don't know of it, you've probably seen it potentially. Yellow striped armyworm is super common and abundant. in other crops as well. Beet armyworm, huge problem also in California. And I think is or was a quarantine pest, which we've talked about before. That basically means that if you find it on your location and you don't report it, then you are basically screwing over everyone else and because it's so difficult uh, to get rid of. So there are actually like legal implications for finding it. And uh, yeah, but there's also perverse incentives for not talking about it. Uh, but these two here, the oblique banded leaf roller and the darker spotted straw moth, I, I actually went out and looked them up a bit after looking at the survey because I had not really encountered them very much. And you can see here that they're also not encountered as much, but still 20% for the oblique and about 15% or 10 or 11% for the straw moth. That's still not nothing, right? So that was kind of interesting to me, but also not found in... 
as many uh, areas. Look at these damn stink bugs. Wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> Tarnished plant bug here, which is Ligus, which a lot of people encounter in California, at least 70%. That's pretty high. Brown marmorade stink bug at 50%. That's a common one, I especially see those in the everywhere. East Coast. I hate those things. Yeah, everywhere. I, see them everywhere I too. went to Maryland recently. It was they were everywhere on the buildings, on the sidewalks. Crazy. And uh, but these two here again, don't I don't really come across these much. The four-lined and the red-shouldered stink bugs, the plant bug here. I don't really encounter that very often, but that was interesting. Flea beetles, I feel like, don't get enough attention. And here the survey shows 65%. Yeah, you guys ever deal with flea beetles? No, I haven't. I haven't seen them. Yeah, they're uh, they're these yeah, sort so. of shiny black beetles. I've seen a few people on Instagram have them, but I haven't yeah. personally encountered it. They kind of skeletonize the leaves. Um, they kind of oh, chew really? holes into the plant. Yeah, I they're not the only that. bug that does that, but that's pretty. That's a pretty common symptom. And uh, I feel like most people who get them get them like outdoors. Like I find that on a commercial scale, they can be a real hassle. And I think like the Midwest gets them uh, pretty commonly in my experience. But as you can see, they were definitely found in all all five regions. Japanese beetle is a huge pest in other crops too. It's also most mostly a leaf feeder. So it's interesting to see that come up. Uh, hasn't been a huge problem for me, but I've had some clients talk about it. But I feel like it's pretty manageable. I definitely wouldn't rank it as as bad as like the corn earworm, for example. Now those borers, Matthew, is is there um have you seen that a lot? Yeah, definitely. And so like they call these borers, and these are moths, right? But like okay. European corn borer. Common stalk borer and the Eurasian hemp borer, I believe all of these are also moths. Um, not, I think the common stalk borer too. So, like, they also belong in this range in this uh, section here. So wait, let I me suppose. ask you this: They, but they, but I've seen. Well, I think I've encountered them. They, they, they chew a hole in the stem and make a home in there, right? Yeah. Um, right. And I don't they, know if do it's these turn... ones, but they definitely exist in your area. So, so I think the European corn borer, for example. Right when I found it on, online, when I first noticed them, I thought I, I thought I identified it as a yellow squash borer, but whatever borer it was. So, do they die in there, or would they? Does it turn into a moth and fly out of the hole? Yeah. So, ideally, what happens, I think, is that they 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 usually they start in the they can start in the flower, but they might just like burrow into the stalk and mostly just eat in the stalk, and they pupate ideally. If it's um, some of these species will come out of the hole and they'll find um, they'll go and they'll burrow into the ground and make a nest there and pupate over winter, for example, or if it's not during uh, winter, they'll pupate and then come out or they will stay in the stalk and then they pupate and then they come out. So, yeah. And if they get killed by like a if you like spray BT or whatever, and you happen to hit them. Um, but they're older and they're able to resist, or maybe they get morbid, they might die in the stalk. But usually they're hard to treat for that reason because they get into the stalk early and there's nothing contact that you can apply, really. Right. That's the great paradox. All right. That's wild. All right. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, here we have for aphids, cannabis aphid at like almost 70%. Other aphids uh, around 50 or 60%. And then rice root aphids also was sort of surprising. It was only found in like four regions, not all five. And at a much lower level than cannabis aphid. I'd like Of to course, see this that. isn't everyone's situation. They only had about 148 respondents, but that's kind of interesting to me. I think that it shows that uh, in some places you might just get them everywhere and it's like the main pest for some people. And for others, um, I guess it either hasn't invaded those sections or, um, you know, it could just be a sampling error or rather sampling bias, I should say, not really an error. So something to consider. So obviously, spider mites were really common, about 80%. A uh, hemp russet mite was around 40% here and also in all five regions. And then down here we have like a smorgasbord of uh, miscellanea with thrips at 73% or so, uh, the potato leafhopper around 70%. We have grasshoppers just generally at 60%, white fly at about 55 leaf miner flies, I think, because there's also leaf miner moths, about 50 or 53%. Fungus gnats, around 50%. And all these were all five regions. Then we have an incidence of two regions for beet leafhopper, which, remember, is the vector for beet curly top virus. But it's interesting, right? Because um, if we go up, I'm not going to go up, but, like, the BCTV was found, I think, in all regions, but the beet leafhopper was not uh, described in all regions. And since we know from research that the beet leafhopper is and maybe one species that is closely related to it are the only vectors of peat curly top virus. That means that, well, you know, some people were just not noting the beet leafhopper. The um, only which known is interesting. vectors. Well, there aren't Right? really, I mean, it's very extensively researched. There's also like other insects that have been, this was actually the example I gave before with like hoplite and viroid. Is it plausible that insects vector it? I think so, but. It's interesting how even like aphids will not vector BCTV, even though essentially they're just sucking up the sap, which should have the virin, the virions in it, and then you know uh, secreting it somewhere else when they're when they feed on another plant. So it's kind of interesting how that happens, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, why that isn't an issue actually. Like I'm even thinking about just like other types of grasshoppers or things like that, not like aphids or a different family entirely, but something maybe more similar to the uh, leafhopper. Well, leafhoppers are like they have a sucking mouth part. They're like um, they're like uh, they're like aphids with they're like they're like a grasshopper and an aphid kind of. They got strong legs to jump, but they also have wings as adults too to fly. And I guess more of my thought was oftentimes we think that we've got the understanding of like, these are the things that spread it. And then, I don't know, five, 10, 20 years later, they say, oh, here's another pest we didn't even realize was a pest. And we found it and it is one of those things that spreads it. So I'm just open-minded to the idea that um, that those are the two known spreaders of it right now. And that I think that there's potentially potential for other ones because like you're saying, it's being spread in a region where they're not describing the pest, but they're describing the pathogen. So... Maybe that's just inaccuracy of the data, or maybe there is something else spreading it. If it was some other virus, I might be, I might agree with you, but it's a really well researched virus. Um, yeah, maybe. But I think that also just because you don't see the beet leaf hopper doesn't mean it wasn't there. Um, 
they might not have found it on like a on I don't know how they were reporting their incidents really. It could be that the beat leaf hoppers came and went, which is pretty commonly reported in research, which I I think think that's is more what likely happened. to be honest But that it's it possible. was there and they just didn't see it Yeah. But but you know, I think that it's good to keep that, you know, as the some philosophers would say, you know, the open mind. You can't fill a cup that's already full, right? And I also still think it's really interesting that And I don't know the answer, but like there are seemingly like you would think some of these, if you can cut a plant and because I agree, if you can cut a plant and vector some viruses just through the cuttings or just through the 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 leaf material, the phloem sap and the the milieu of phloem and, and, and tissue, uh, then why would, you know, why would like the chompers of a, the mandibles of a caterpillar not work the same way? You know what I'm saying? So I think that's actually still a good point to make, but I do know Or even that there's like a windstorm. a lot of research. Like what if plants were so close to each other during a violent storm, they're blowing into each other, some branches break, they have open wounds, they're rubbing into each other. If it's, if that's all that it takes. Like I know um, a different one, the hoplite enviride, all it needs to do is leaf touch leaf. But um, it seems like this one, there needs to be an open wound, but there's life and nature finds a way, right? And so I think like that example, just violent wind, which is something I see. People's plants get blown over and broken. And uh, even like minor abrasions that you might not see unless you get down to the microscope level. Um, I think it could be just a potential outside one that like it's a third or fourth or 10th variable that we just don't think about when we're initially evaluating what might be spreading or causing the transfer. On that point, tobacco mosaic virus, as I think I'm remembering right, the report that I read was about viruses moving on like dust particles and things. I think TMV was one of those examples. And it's also, unlike other viruses, it's pretty stable outside of its host. So that's also some an, a point or two in its favor for being um, able to move around. But like if it's if it's it's so small that if it gets onto some little piece of aerial flotsam and then just wafts around like Like spores can happen that way too. So um, That's crazy. I love And I've talking even about heard that kind of thing. mosaic virus from like a cigarette pack where maybe there was a cigarette smoker Yeah. in the cannabis production and before they lit up the cigarette, it got on their hand and then they touched the plant and then they have the tobacco mosaic virus on their cannabis grow, um, which was a, like a suspected thing. And I just never knew if that was actually confirmable, but it sounds like that's a pretty durable virus that living maybe on or outside uh, its, you know, living plant host. Uh, and with with hoplite and viroid, that's actually one of the recent research reports that came out. It's kind of scary that it could. I think they found that like dried flower that had HLVD can not a problem for us, but it can be um, maybe a vector, just like you said, kind of like with TMV and tobacco, because it because TMV is stable and can even survive the processing of tobacco, which is really, you know, amazing. And then hoplite and viroid is pretty pretty stable too. And so if that's the case, then, well, uh, there's some interesting implications, I think. Uh, but yeah, learn my, my biggest point here for this graph, uh, for people who are watching, just, um, you know, learn about ligus, learn about tarnished plant bugs. Unlike aphids, they don't really vector viruses so much, but uh, they can kind of turn up and be a real a, a real problem. I still put them at a lower level of threat than like, an earworm and other sorts of things but um they can kind of swarm especially again if you're like outdoors if you're indoors i wouldn't worry about them too much to be honest but 
Um, yeah, if you haven't seen a tarnished plant bug or anything like that, they kind of look like small stink bugs, which is why they're in the same sort of group here. Um, but yeah, they're pretty common. And in California, I would say uh, they're really common in the spring and late summertime, kind of like thrips, where they're feeding on a bunch of weedy plants all over the place. And then when the, the environment dries out and the annuals die, they're all looking for some food and greenhouses are... And fields of plants are going to be what they home in and on. So if you're indoor, that's not really a problem. Much. Also, yeah, cannabis aphids seem to really outmatch the rice root aphids for whatever reason. I think that's kind of interesting. I actually, I personally have experienced the reverse. I feel like more people um, encounter the right rice root aphid than the cannabis aphid that I've worked with. But uh, apparently... Um, this one, this has not been the case for the survey. So that's interesting just to note. But both are a problem, for sure. But both of our problem. Yeah, no. And uh, and there's a lot of similar strategies for both too. The only problem is that rice root aphid is a little more cryptic because it could be in the roots. But uh, cannabis aphid is a foliar uh, aphid only, and it's a specialist of cannabis. So you're only going to be getting it from other people growing cannabis. So maybe that's the reason why. You have good content on <laughs> yeah. that one. I think it's got a cool name like Forodon or something Forodon like that. Cannabis, But I, I remember yeah, watching Forodon some. Gift Bearer, because it's giving you all of its nice young, I think. Oh, Um, geez. or it's the gift that you get through cuttings. That's <laughs> funny irony. Flea beetles we already talked about, basically. So yeah, if you guys, especially I feel like they're really common in, um, like the, I feel like the Midwest, especially because they've got a lot of crops. Like you'll find them a lot on like coal crops. So, um, uh, and also like brassica, you know, various brassica species, you'll find them on, um, uh, what was I going to say about this? Uh, cotton as well. I feel like it's a lot of flea beetle action as well. So if you're in places where those are grown quite a bit, I would be concerned whether in the U S or elsewhere, to be honest, spider mites, of course, not really much to get into. I don't need to hurrying the point. But yeah, lots of people dealt with spider mites. And that's actually one that I've often called like one of the most common pests. So that lined up with this survey. Uh, yeah, wow. Beat, how is this occurrence of mites? Wait, no, here. Right. Occurrence of arthropods in these areas. Response to confirmed causal pathogens. Okay, yeah. So we got a lot of beet leafhopper uh, in all five regions. 100% occurrence. That's interesting. Thrips is really high at 73%. Uh, thrips here again for the northeast for B. So that's Great Plains and also the northeast. They have a lot. Of, they're getting lots of thrips over there. Also in uh, north central apparently. And I'm just going to speed through that. And actually, that's all of them. C congratulations. <laughs> so yeah, what did we learn today? Lots of bugs. Insect review slash uh, update from around the, is this America, North America, U.S., It's in USA U.S. 21 and 22. So actually it wasn't 2023. It was just published in 2023. Still interesting, and I think that a lot of these places are going to be facing the same problems. And I'd like to pass it to Spartan Grown because I know he's connected with the show he's going to be going to in about 15 minutes called the Michigan Bros Grow Show. And a few other shows like uh, Medical
Yeah, I haven't really heard a lot of anything out of the ordinary. It's it's basically fungus gnats and thrips, I would say, the two most common ones that I've heard most people say that they will struggle with at different bush seasons for them usually. And um uh and then mites, you know, you'll get mite you'll get mite outbreaks here and there, and that could be I don't see a lot of resident mite stuff. It's 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 mostly like maybe spider mites. You know, you what I would call your normal big three or so that you'd see in even home grows. So I'm talking commercial growers struggle with the same stuff. And it's probably, probably home growers, you know, they're probably growing at home and they're going to work and bringing the pests is likely or vice versa, where people are working at grows that might not have the best IPM strategies. And then unfortunately they go home to their own grow and then now their home grows infected because they didn't uh, take the right steps when they get home either. So Take a shower when you get home from your grow jobs, guys. That's it's gonna help your grow too. <laughs> Even for your animals, I think I, I gave my cat yeah. a flea because I was doing a lesson at a client's house and they had a cat and I noticed I had a flea collar and this cat just loves up on me whenever I show up and whenever I'm about to leave. And I was petting it and I went straight home. And I didn't think I had like actual cat fur on like my sleeves and stuff. It's cold or whatever. I go home and I see my cats and I'm petting them. And then my wife spots a flea on one of them. And like, we brush it out and make sure it was and ended up just being like, you know, a couple, but it can get bad fast if you're not on top of it. And, um, it can be that easy. You know, you just <laughs> were petting somebody's dog or cat and then you go and play with yours and then they end up having whatever that other one had. So it's a good reminder, IPM in life and in the garden. It can be that simple. It could be going to the grocery store and talking to some guy shaking a hand and they have it on. Like some it's people have it on the point clothes. too. Yeah. The grocery store is a big one, man. You could, uh, because everybody's going there, right? You're, it's a concentration of growers and with problems. <laughs> yeah. With problems. They're going there to get something. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's a scary one. That's a scary one. The grocery store. I don't, I try not to go there very often as much as and I the can. the pallets and stuff. Often if you ever see them stacked up outside. Yeah, a lot of the times it, it might not. You might be like, "Oh, fuck Promix or fuck whoever," but it comes in clean, and then they stick it on a pallet next to you know ten other pallets, and who <laughs> knows, you know, which one had it first. But now all of them have it because they're all sitting right next to each other or on the shelf right next to each other, so it can spread pretty easily. Absolutely. So, I, but I don't know. I just think it's maybe we're echoing it, but it needs to be echoed a lot. And I think the best IPM is just. You know, treat your grow like it has maybe a slight investation every week to, you know, do do some IPM strategies. Don't wait for something to happen and then react to it. If you can be ahead of it and have some IPM strategies to be ahead of the game, then I just think it's so much easier to deal with a few very low pest pressure than to ever have to deal with really high pest pressure. And that was reinforced to me recently when I did, was doing that testing, I had a tent set aside just because I didn't want to spread the bugs anywhere else. So I already knew from my growing is like, I'm going to treat this test grow like I would a clone. It's like quarantine time, not anywhere near my grow thing. And I'm glad I did that because um, when I infested with spider mites, I wasn't treating, I wanted them to get you know me i always like to go big i'm like if you want to convince me i want that something works i'm gonna go big so i let it get nuts in there in the veg stage with spider mites it was disgusting <laughs> but they weren't webbing but there was a, a big population and then um when you see that as a grower it's just like 
you do extra things like, okay, I know that I have, I know that I have pests in this part of the grow. That's going to be the, I'm going to water and do everything in all of my other grow stuff and get all that done. And then I'll deal with this very last thing, very last thing. And then I leave and I can take a shower and uh, you just take all these extra steps to not do, you know, those steps that you've learned wrong as a grower doing it wrong. Like, Oh, I'm gonna go take care of that bug thing first and then go walk through my grow. Well, now you've got a bigger problem. <laughs> so yeah, it's just, I think the best IPM is just layers. It's just two, two layers to do multiple things. Like um, if I'm just doing IPM and I don't have any pest pressure, I might just do one or two things. Like maybe I'll, I'll spray with wettable sulfur or I'll definitely always do a wettable sulfur dunk with cuttings and clones coming out of my clone dome. That's always just a thing I do. So they got a wettable sulfur coating early on. And then uh, after that, they might get once every week or two, they might get a spray with like my go-to right now has been Lost Coast Plant Therapy. So I'll spray that. Um, and that's if I see no pest pressure. And now I've got those lights, but I've only got them in flower right now. I don't have sets to cover my veg yet. Eventually I have them in my veg too, but I, I, in flower, I'm just not going to, what I did do before the lights was I had predator bugs I would introduce, but now I'm just going to skip that step and I'm replacing it with the lights. So it's still layers. Um, that way, if one mode of action misses, the other mode of action cleans up for you. And it's not trying to clean up a billion. It's trying to clean up a few. Um, and I think that's the best way to set yourself up for success in the garden when it comes to pests. No, that's that's all I got on that. <laughs> I'll say I like how the Lost Coast plant therapy smells. That stuff's pretty awesome, in my opinion. Man, it's when like I seen a, the the, sure. the owner on his Instagram like to spray it directly in his mouth, I'm like yep. okay, that's organic enough for me, man. That's organic enough for me. And then I tried it and it worked. And I was okay. I'm so. I will say I think that the roundup corporation had a guy drink some of that in a cup at one point on national television and i still don't think that it, that makes it safe but it shows confidence um, in your product and i do right, think, I would stand more behind lost coast uh, plant therapy just looking at the ingredients list than than roundup yeah. but it is funny to think that at one point in time that was like it's sort of like a i don't know <laughs> everybody compares a lot of stuff to snake oil and it just always right. it goes back to like my whatever example, but something that you mentioned that I think is really relevant is um, kind of attacking it early, whether it's a clone or a seed early in veg and getting on top of things. And Tao kind of mentioned it as well. If you can kind of defeat it in veg, then you won't spread it to the rest of the garden, to your flower or your later veg, if you have different stages of your grow and uh, taking care of things early and even having like that quarantine separated area before you get things started is a big help because then if you start off clean, it's a lot easier to stay clean. And you can usually figure out uh, where it came from if you're being diligent with whatever you're bringing in. But sometimes it just sneaks in depending on your situation. Like you might not have a fully sealed thing. You might be in a greenhouse or completely outdoor and uh, you have to deal with whatever it happens. So it's uh, certainly, I just, I'm glad that we have tools. I, I do like Lost Coast Plant Therapy. I've used it and it helped me defeat spider mites in the past. I mentioned my barber had them and it was like his first grow. So I was happy to help him get through that and get himself a good harvest and not have to worry. Are there chemicals on there that are going to be harmful to ingest later? Like I think the uh, overall timeline on that stuff is like maybe less than a week. 
uh, how long it lasts in terms of like the half-lives on the oils and things like that. So by the time your bud's dried and cured, like even if you used it earlier mid-flower, you're not going to, I guess some people spray it all the way up to the end flower, which He's told me, he's I'm not told a big me, fan of doing I had that him with on anything. a show recently. He told me he's had a customer, they sprayed it after harvest. They hung I've heard, the plants I've heard people do this. and sprayed it after harvest and still at past state testing and everything. So it must have a really short half-life. The PPM or it's like parts per billion, I guess I've been told it's like pretty much. And I've heard the same thing about um, one of the enzyme products as well, that you can spray it all the way up through harvest and it'll pass part per billion testing as well. But I still would wonder about the flavors and the impact that it might potentially have because it definitely smells when I have sprayed it. Like it, it's got a strong smell. And Well, if they're spraying it, there's there's probably have a flavor impact for whatever they're spraying it on, <laughs> for whatever the reason is they're spraying it anyway. So maybe it might. that's true. You want to eliminate the pest because the pest could potentially eliminate the crop, right? Because if you don't get in control of it, then you're not going to have anything to even test for. So um, it, I have seen crops so spider mite infested and so webbed up. It's like, what are they even going to do with this? Like, I wonder what the cannabinoid content of anything under there is. Like, they must just blast it or something or... Chop it down and throw it away. God, that's yeah. I hope they just chop it down to a way. That's what I hope when I see I those. hope so too, but you know these big commercial operations Yeah, they're not aren't doing doing that. that. They're yeah, they're they're concentrating that. Whack it with some UV, <laughs> run it through a microwave a couple times. Put it in the magic box. Hey, I've I've seen something Portritus uh, Scenera. Uh, I think it was UVB. It was like some maybe it was done in apples or maybe it was done in cannabis. I can't remember, but they exposed like a moldy. thing to the light for x amount of minutes in like a box and then it killed all of the living whatever cells which matthew's mentioned in the past like yeah but you still have the stuff on there but in terms of like testing or whatever or uh the harmful living bacteria some people aren't satisfied with that Maybe mycotoxins might still be hanging out, though, I would imagine. That's Mycotoxins that's my worry. could be, but I even remember on, uh, you know, several, many episodes ago, we talked about UV use, and I'm sure that I shared about um, a report that I like to talk about with, with UV, and for powdered mildew, I think it was on strawberries, and also botrytis. Yeah, they found that when they dosed the strawberries, like, you know, they just eviscerate, like the powdery mildew, They, they were judging like um, spore toxicity and also separately like when you have like an actual colony of like fungal hyphae, you know, how much. And you really, they really didn't need um, at the frequencies that they were using, they really didn't need that long, you know, to be honest. So it's one of those things where for UV lights, like even if you don't get everything in the first pass, like like the like the Dutch... grows with the booms that we're talking about or perhaps like with this grow light that you know here it's like uh you know it's like uh this really stressful dosing and even if you you'll screw them up even if you don't kill them outright is the kind of idea and and like you were like we were all saying earlier it's like layers you know will this kill everything perhaps not everything but will it significantly damage and the other thing is like If you only have a small population, you know, then that's great, right? Like, you know, that's going to be way more difficult for the colony to grow. If you're buying these lights when you already have a problem, you know, I, I don't know. if it, <laughs> it could still be really useful, but I think they're, they're most effective in their preventative space, just like a lot of controls for that matter. I agree with you. It's interesting because whether it's berries or cannabis, I believe that there's
worldwide shortage of both that or at least quality um, and like good sources for people to get the benefits that both of those things provide. So having more tools in our toolbox to, I think like, I think the study that I do remember looking at was a strawberry potentially study. And if you can increase the amount of food available, like you can prevent starvation. Like there is a huge amount of food insecurity still. Like every country that I'm aware of has people that are still struggling here in the U.S. and all over the world. So making available more food and not having it rot as quickly, because sometimes like maybe there's small amounts. There's just like in cannabis, there's allowable levels. So maybe it's like a 1,000 CFU going out because it got hit by the UV the whole time instead of like 10, 20, 50,000 CFU. And over the little bit of time it warms up, going from somebody's grocery cart back to their house and getting it put away and maybe they leave it on the counter or uh, don't refrigerate it or whatever. And some of that stuff will rot in, you know, maybe a day if it didn't get hit by some level of UV or uh, in my opinion, like ideally not <laughs> sprayed with harmful pesticides that we might consume, but oftentimes that is the way that it is. And that's why growing your own is so beneficial, but um, it's really important that we just continue to allow ourselves to have options to produce high quality things like cannabis and food without necessarily being dependent on a high amount of different sprays. So I think that there's a certainly sometimes limited options, but uh, I'm glad to see that there's more being implemented in our space because it seems like it's been used in other spaces successfully. So I can imagine something like that working. And even back when the intro light was doing it, it's like, I'm kind of a wait and see. I think Brandon tried one. And Brandon, maybe you could talk to that. How was the intro light? I think is what it was called. The little ring under lighting. How did that work for you? I didn't really try it that much, dude. I, I mean, I had it in there and shit. It just, it just seems more gimmicky than anything. I just, I, maybe I just like to do my, my, regular ipm that i know is tried and true over like if it ain't broke that, don't fix it yeah you know and like it also it's like you have to run that in a bed where there's water like because i you know i don't like here's the problem i don't have a bunch of issues so if i had a bunch of issues and then i brought the light in and then that's all i was using and then those issues disappeared then i'd be like sold but I do my standard maintenance, and it's like adding something additionally. I don't, you know, I don't know if it, other than increasing maybe electric costs, I don't know if it's gonna actually do anything. I just, I think yeah, like if you fair. have every single option available and you try to implement every single option available, and you know, it's like not necessarily the acme of excellence. I agree. Also, I feel like, um, Compared to other UV light products out there, like um, I had a lot of people ask, like I think we've been covered it somewhat, but like the intralight, um, you know, there was a lot about how I, you know, I don't want to talk too much about it because I was actually contacted, but um, it just seemed like it's not like other UV light products, and in some ways, I found it kind of, it's like it seemed very underpowered. Um, yeah, I didn't have any way to quantify that, but it was mostly based on just like the diodes, uh, their placement on the structure where you would have yeah. to apply it. Like, like Jack, you were saying there, like, I feel like compared to other UV products, it was very different and it was surprising 
also kind of the marketing and stuff um, that was kind of like around it and how they were talking about it. And they, the website even had like, they might still do have like research reports that were saying um, they're supposed to show how it would be useful. But the way that the research reports, several which I'd already read before, Um, going onto the website, so they aren't about the intralight in particular. They just took cool UV light research report and put it on their website, but they're not—they're not relevant. You know, they weren't uh, doing the same things. So I just—I uh, feel Really? like, yeah, like you'd have to have problems enough to to justify it. It's the right kinds of pests too, and on top No. of that, there I'm are not better wattage products emplacement that matters, can but I want to pass it before Tao passes it to Brandon. Oh, I yeah, want to of pass course. it to uh, Spartan because we've got about 15 minutes left, which means he's got to get uh, heading on over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. So any final thoughts and shout outs from Spartan Grown? Yeah, I just want to say that, uh, well, as far as the intro light, I think they had the right idea. They just went the wrong way with it. The, the design wasn't, yeah, I'm not going to go. I don't like trash in other companies or anything. But yeah, they had the right idea. And I think it was one of those things, like one of the <clears throat> early people into the market, and then you improve on it. And and um, and yeah, they were a lot of stock a lot too. So they had all kinds of other issues, but um, and I, I just say no, nah, I don't want to. I don't want. I just say behind the scenes, I saw some other stuff about it that I wasn't impressed with with it. But um, I think that the technology is still something that we can use as a tool in our gardens to help out if if we need to, you know, in gardens that that need that extra help. And uh, I think it's a great replacement for especially the home grower and. Um, not having to deal with predators when usually you need to have a hookup with, you know, with a commercial guy or somebody, you know, to get a decent price as a home grower to get a few sachets, you don't need 50, you know, you don't need a hundred. That's hard to get a good deal on predators when you're just a small home grower. So you can pay that. the retail price on this will be 225. I know it sounds like a commercial, but people are going to ask me. So I'm just going to say it now. So I don't have to answer a million questions. The retail price is going to be 225 for something that's in a cover. It's designed for a four by four, but I'm pretty sure it'll cover five by five as well. Um, so, I mean, if you think about that, and that's a three year warranty. So, what do you pay for predators in three years? I think it's it pays for itself fairly quick for a home grower. And at the commercial side, too, depending on what your pressures are and what you have to do and your protocols. I think it could save you some money on sprays too. <laughs> Anyhow, you can shoot me an email at russ at gmlarmy.com if you have any questions on the light. And uh, we'll be pre-launching in a week. Otherwise, I'm going to shoot over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. Thanks, everybody. This was an awesome episode. Sorry to make it like a commercial, but it's just exciting technology for me. Stuff I have in my home garden right now. So <laughs> I just, Peace I just out, like Spartan. Yeah. Peace out, guys. Much love. Keep on growing. Cheers, Martin. See you next time. I can't believe that uh, they intentionally infected gardens for science. You know, <laughs> that's kind of a oh yeah, you yeah, gotta behind do the product. it. But like you've said, that they have done that for like field crop testing to see if there's actually resistant populations. You have to infect them to see if they're actually resistant. So, in certain cases, it makes sense to do that for. the actual science of it and it sounds like he's working with the university which uh it sounds like i think for those who don't understand i think spartan might be under a non-disclosure agreement or nda so he may not be able to say 100 percent. but we got a lot out of them so i think that people will be mostly satisfied or at least their curiosities will be uh wet a little bit 
for whenever they do the pre-launch thing. So I'm curious to see how it goes. Like I'm typically a skeptic on things. I'm kind of on the branding camp. If it broke, don't fix it. I've got a lot of methods. I've followed lots of Matthews IPM tips in the past. So thankfully I'm not 100% reliant on this light coming out for my garden to be protected from pathogens or pests. But uh, I think it's cool to have an option to potentially replace or reduce need for predators. I'm always I'm a fan of it. Just I think it's like good guys versus bad guys. Like that was one of the first things I found on like Matthew's page that like really captured and drew me into the IPM like side of things. Like predator mites taking out and then like my gardener who or my barber who became a gardener uh, when he got spider mites and then we actually got to implement it and I saw it firsthand. Like we bought a little bit too much and they just went in there and fucked shit up and saved the grow. It was like, I don't know, almost a, there's a romance to that that is just so fun and cool that like a light might do it as effectively, but the whole, there's other things involved. Like I can't be in the room. I don't want like my DNA to be fucked with. And then like in the back of my head, I'm going to be thinking, is it going to change the expression of the plant? Maybe it does better it, but I always wonder like, because all the research in modern times that we've looked at whenever a doc is here and we've done science time, on past episodes, most of the modern stuff says that UVs are not benefiting the cannabinoid or terpene production. Small amounts, large amounts, like Bugby and other researchers, uh, Cell in Michigan, the Controlled Environment Lighting Lab, and several other research labs have looked into the benefits of different lights, light cycles, light colors, spectrums, and all that. And it just seems like high efficiency light in the like you know 400 to 700 spectrum was pretty solid range for a long time and now they're opening it up a little bit to like the 750 maybe 380 range but generally like photonic light that it comes through in the uh, photosynthetic range is great for plants to grow and it's shown to be like look at brandon's grow look at aaron's grow look at all these other grows with leds cmh even hps i mean we've been doing it for a long time without having to put a special uv light in there but i do think I'm always open to the suggestion. I've seen the plasma grower in uh, Europe who got higher terpene and cannabinoid results in their hemp and in their rosemary. And uh looks like Taiwan muted, so maybe he's got some other examples of where well, UV in modern times is beneficial. Point out a couple things that they probably might have not tested. You know, the entourage effect, if you had UVB, A, and C at different, uh, you know, weight, uh, different powers, whatever. You know, that's one thing, an entourage effect that they don't know about. But I was going to just say, they realized about this EPAR extending the photosynthetic PAR range, right? What, in just a couple of years ago, maybe four or five? So how long before that were we under the impression that that EPAR range had no effect on plants? Then the green, the green light too, Bugby found out it has some sort of effect too, right? It wasn't like we were filtering it out. It was more so that we have more effective science now that can create more precise instruments that can measure different light ranges. Right. So we're figuring That's out. That's kind oh. of my point. That in the future, they'll have better instruments to figure out more shit. And by the time they're done, I'm going to say sunlight would be the best freaking spectrum for the plant. And probably like the sunlight that it gets, it's different sunlight. You got a different equator and different heights and mountains and shit like that. So depending on the plant, probably different amounts would do best for the plant. But, you know, I'm just speculating. 
I don't. I I agree with that. Well, one I mean, thing, I'm a big fan. One of thing that I think was thought of is like from... woo. One thing that I thought that might be considered like kind of woo is if you said, you know, oh, you know, I like to replicate nature, so I make sure that I, you know, transition from photo periods, you know, very gradually. Uh, a lot of people would be like, I don't need to do that. You know, it's just I just flip it when I flip it. Who cares? But now we All see. right. That that's actually a very stressful thing to do to the plant. And it kind of makes intuitive sense if you have a basic, you know, physiological understanding of, of what's going on. It is, it is actually very unnatural. So sometimes I feel like using that as a, um, you know, as inspiration for seeing like, well, you know, maybe there is something very closely tied to the mechanisms, at least. I think that's valid. But at the same time, I also agree that like, And also when people are talking about UV lights, I feel as though like, you know, maybe it's not helpful for photosynthesis and things like this. Sure. But, um, you know, I was, I'm always, I'm always reminded that like UV light can affect the cannabinoid, not the necessarily the production, like how the plant metabolizes it, but more so like the cannabinoids that are already produced are going to be reactive to UV and they will, they will degrade in that presence, like I've said many times on the show. So it's more like, you know, maybe that would be not desirable or maybe it doesn't really matter, you know, for some people, like whatever might happen after the fact, you know. I think Well, that would definitely that's, matter depending on the strain. Like, I let's say well, that's it what I evaporates mean. Yeah. If off you when you're care taking this. about the response, if you care about the outcome, then I think it matters a lot. If you, for whatever reason, don't care, then, then obviously it's a non-starter. I think that I was just I'll going say to this. say, I'll go go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I, I grew plants that are, and it depends on where the plant was originated, if it's that close to whatever. But I grew plants that were like grown the whole lives on the 12 and 12. And I brought them inside and put them under 18 hours of light and they grew like crazy. So it was like little things that affect everything. And um, I forgot what else I was going to say now, but yeah, I'm a stoner. But yeah, I'll I was say just stuff going back to that. the the sun being so important like I've been in California for at least a decade plus now at this point and I've had access to a lot of stuff from the legal market medical days and now uh, adult use and Humboldt has consi consistently had some of the best shit and now that they have way more stuff is coming from Santa Barbara and all these other counties not more maybe in mass but like more than used to be coming from those areas that i have access to and still like mendocino humboldt still shine over and i've gone to other states and i've traveled a little bit internationally had the pleasure of trying stuff from all around and the places that are famous are famous for a reason it's better there it's just there's no denying it like when you go up there and you have it firsthand you especially see it but and i've had the pleasure of going through a lot of the different areas around here and getting to meet a lot of the different growers. My wife's working as a, you know, purchaser at a industry, in the industry right now. So she works with a lot of different, she hand selected a few different growers to make different brands in her uh, delivery service. So you get to interact with a lot of these different people, but there is something different between indoor and outdoor uh, and greenhouse. Like I think having the sun involved, I think that, lifts the maximum potential and I, I don't know what it could be the weather it could be other things there's some killer ass indoor some of my favorite shit i'd say it's like 
gets that nine out of 10 bar, maybe, uh, if it's really well done. But like the 10 out of the 10 stuff that I've had that I've come across is either greenhouse or full sun grown. And when it's full sun, it's almost always from Humboldt or Mendocino by people who've probably been doing it for a really long, long, long time and understand their area. And like going back to the pest part of this uh, presentation, like it's a lot of them in California. One thing that I didn't even see talked about was like some years fires fuck with it. So like people have worse, smaller or uh, less desirable harvest because of a giant wildfire close enough to them. Like a few years ago, Mendo Dope had smaller plants than usual because the sun was literally blocked for almost two months by smoke. And a lot of the people's hash that year tasted smoky. And like there's these weird things that nature does that then can make outdoor less desirable, right? Because then all those indoor crops that were tasting and smelling just how they were supposed to uh, were getting much higher value than the stuff that was kind of smoky and not tasting as desirable as it was hoping it would be. So there's so many different factors that play into it every season. That's kind of what I think brings almost like a wine. Each season has its like vintage. So like some years, like I, I have this jar that I keep from Mendo Dope of their passion orange guava. I think it was actually through Green Shock Farms, but 7% fucking dirt beans. <laughs> and it tasted just like passion orange guava, like the juice. Like if you're into Hawaii or had pog, some people call it passion orange guava, fucking unbelievable how much it smelled like that. And great high, great flavor, but it was full sun and people love to hate on outdoor full sun. And I wish uh, we had a little bit more time to I wish I would have meant to pass it back to you earlier and talk about some of your experience with all the pests and things. You used to have some experience in the New York area and I know you've got a newly, uh, you know, different area, but it looks like we're going to be wrapping up here in the next few minutes. So maybe we'll yeah, save that for the I next one. Gonna, I forgot to ask that um, during that whole report thing that Matthew went through termites, I got the termites that one year. I was pretty impressed, but I've seen it mentioned more than once in other spots. That would make sense to me. I mean, they're very damaging and problematic, but uh, Matthew, any any quick responses? Have you seen it or heard about it in reports? Oh, uh, you mean, well, like I mentioned termites before. Do you mean like a specific one or what? Just, yeah, I... I'm not sure if he has a specific one, but just termites no, and cannabis. But it's like they didn't mention them in that um what we read through tonight. Oh um, right, yeah, yeah. No, no, they stuff. didn't. That's so so like, the ones I'm talking about, I think they are like I've I've found a few, they've gotten some attention. Um they're not getting a whole lot of attention in research, so I'm curious how much of a problem they're really gonna be. I'm afraid that they could be Formosan termites, but I don't actually know. They look similar. Um, but termites are not my thing usually. They're probably rare, yeah, because it was like out yeah, in the well, wilderness where there was dead trees everywhere. Yeah, well, the thing about these Formosan termites, if they are these, is that they feed on dead and living plant matter. So mm, that's why they're right. such a big bear. And wherever they establish, they typically um, they can't really be eradicated so far. They get their name from Taiwan. The old, the old name for Taiwan Island is Formosa. So... Um, they're another invasive, so we'll yeah, see. But it's 1800, so it's time the to babies wrap it eat up. through the root of the live plant and crawl in and eat the, through the insides. That's what I and that's what it looked like happened when I 
because I took out the plan. I put it in a garbage bag with all like big root ball and everything. I took it home to investigate it because I wanted to extract it from the rest of the plants. And when I opened it up, I found them little white bugs. It took me like that sounds like three that. or four days of internet searching to find out they were baby, they were termites. It was a picture from India that exactly matched what they were. So it was weird. Incredible. I loved how it's a rare gorilla grower experience. That's a, you know, not your common everyday thing that's coming up in the research, which is always fun. But I want to pass it to the uh, host of tonight's show, really, was uh, Matthew Gates. Thank you so much for bringing in this interesting research. I love it. I know it's sometimes not uh, certain people's favorite topic because they want to avoid it and kind of stick their head in the sand and pretend like pests are never going to happen to them. But it's especially interesting to know in the U.S. which region uh, most of our listeners, like 70 plus percent, I think, are U.S. listeners. So you now have more insight onto what you might potentially be facing and it can help narrow some of the information that you need to take in, especially through somebody who has great content out there like Matthew Gates. So Matthew, I'll let you go ahead and give your final thoughts and shout outs before we wrap it up. Yeah, thanks. And that's exactly the point of this survey. I'm glad that people were able to get something out of it. The whole point is just essentially, hey, these are what people, what some people are seeing, a small segment of sampling, if you haven't dealt with some of these pests, you might consider um, having a plan for them, especially the ones that maybe don't get talked a lot about. So hopefully that is a good inspiration for, for exactly this. And if you're interested in more information about this kind of a thing, my YouTube channel Xenthanol is available. I have videos about various pests, many of which found in cannabis, but also in other crops for that matter. You can check those videos out there on my YouTube channel. You can also find me on the Instagram account at SyncAngel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. And you can also follow the QR code or find me at xenthanol.com for professional inquiries. And you can also check out my Patreon if you'd like to support some of the video making that I make for as little as $1 a month. And you get access to my Discord and a bunch of people who are interested in IPM and talk IPM. So if you have a problem, you can reach out to me there very quickly and easily or the various other people who are there too. So I look forward to this year being much more productive and I'll be on a bunch of other cool events coming up soon. So check it out. Good stuff. Great group of like-minded people and lots of good content. Definitely check that out and I'll pass it next to Brandon Russ. Brandon, you're on mute if you're still with us. Oh, my bad. Uh, what's going on? I'm glad to be here. Um, thanks for having me on as usual. And uh, yeah, for all the listeners, if you guys go to Bokashi Earthworks website and use Grow Big as a code at checkout, you can get 10% off your order, even on things already on sale. And yeah, see you guys next time. Love that. Grow big on Bokashi Earthworks. And uh, last and certainly not least of our panelists this evening is the American one. Jack, thanks for hosting as always. It's great to see the panel. It's good to see ATG Acres tonight. Shout out to him and uh, uh, shout out to everyone in the chat. Uh, I am the American one, uh, the American one un underscore with underscore Akeens over on the IG. And yeah, it's always good to be here and we'll catch you all next week. Peace out, everyone. Great oh, having sorry. you, as always. You're all good, man. I was just trying to sneak a bong rip in there. I was cleaning out my whips so it doesn't get a resin sticking up all on the screen. After you dump the bowl out, sometimes when you hit it with nothing on there, it just keeps the screen from getting coated with 
little flower particle or resin and things like that to keep it pulling smooth for a little bit longer. Kind of last second uh, stoner tip there for anybody out there using the VB1 vaporizer or similar devices like that. But I am Jack Greenstock. As you can see here, you can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram or Jack underscore Greenstock on X. And you could email me jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. Uh, my website is 50strains.com, and I'm going to be doing a sale for 2024, so look out for that for books and seeds for those in the U.S. Internationally, the shipping is just a little bit ridiculous, so unfortunately, I can't offer those sales to you outside of the U.S., but most of you are within the U.S., so good for you all. And thank you all so much for the support, both on this show, uh, my website, and everything like that, and supporting all these other panelists, because I know everybody keeps showing up, so people are happy to be here, get their uh, name, face, and uh, knowledge out there, and keep growing that uh, grow love with this community. It's a really supportive group of awesome people like-minded people and we're very thankful to have you all here the listeners on the live youtube it's a great chat every single week an amazing community if you haven't joined from the podcast side maybe consider if you can make it one of these weeks 4 to 6 p.m on the west coast uh, but if you can't we completely understand listening i usually drop these on mondays for the podcast listeners so thank you everybody wherever you listen and whenever you listen have a great one peace